0: The people that did, like, place me as Indian right away were really happy to have an Indian come visit Mm -hmm. because I hadn't recognized until I had gone to the Arab world. Indian soft power actually means a lot there in the sense that everybody loves Bollywood. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I forgot all about
1: Bollywood.
0: <laughs> yeah. I did, too, because, I, I mean, it's not like I'm from southern India, so I don't speak Hindi. I don't watch Bollywood movies mm-hmm. much as a result. Yeah. And, you know, it's not really like I was that tied to watching them after I moved to the States anyways. Yeah. Um, so here I was, you know, worrying people would be racist towards me because I'm Indian. And it, it's the opposite. They loved me. They loved the fact that I was Indian. I would go to the souks to shop and they'd be like, You're Indian? Okay. Here, I'm giving this as a discount. We love Indian people. We love, like, (laughs) Taxi drivers would be like you're Indian, and be like yeah, and then they would start speaking in Hindi to me, and I was like, how do you learn this? They're like, oh, Bollywood movies. <laughs> I myself Hindi while watching Bollywood, and they would speak Hindi with no trace of an accent, and he- and then I would have to embarrassingly tell them, so I don't actually speak <laughs> Hindi. You, know, you could just see their faces fall because they were like, damn, I thought like you're finally an Indian, I could speak my Hindi. Oh. <laughs>
1: Come hello, hello! Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad! Perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Varsha as the guest. Varsha I've known since high school. We had a couple of French classes together and um, our neighborhoods were pretty close to each other and coincidentally we ended up going to the same university. And um, Varsha is so intelligent oh my goodness so so intelligent and kind and um, normally I I try to go in in chronological order when I ask guests about their experiences but uh, this time around we ended up uh, going in reverse (laughs) where um, Varsha spent some time telling me about how she ended up in Washington DC doing the type of work that she does focused on the Arab world Middle Eastern affairs and policy political and economic research and the like uh so talking about where she is now and then circling back to her time studying abroad in Morocco uh Varsha was very fortunate to participate in an Arabic flagship program which was structured to include two study abroad experiences one uh lasting um a summer and then another lasting an entire year and um Interestingly enough, the program was supposed to be located in um, in Egypt, but because of things that were going on at the time, it got shifted to Morocco, and um, just being in Morocco itself uh, ended up giving Varsha a, a lot, uh, both linguistically and personally, but um, she will be the one to tell you all about that, as well as um, details about the program and and, um, why she got interested in learning Arabic in the first place, so, um, she's really a delight to, uh, to talk to and listen to, so, um, I'm excited for y'all to hear it, so, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with my friend, Varsha Kodovayer. Okay, so we are good, um, so, Thank you for (laughs) thank you for um, agreeing to be a guest on this podcast. Um, I'm really glad that you were able to make the time. I know you're doing like you have like vacation and you were spending time with your dad and all that stuff. Um, So I'm really glad I got to a chance to sit and talk with you. Um, And uh, let's see. I guess we can just start with uh, you introducing yourself for people who aren't familiar with you um you know go ahead and say whatever it is you want to say about yourself
0: okay sure well thank you for having me on this podcast I when, I, when you first sent me the page request for it I was like oh my god this is so cool and I remember thinking <laughs> when you launched it I was like yeah I wonder if I wonder if Danielle will let me be a guest on this and then when oh. you reached out like, no way! I was very, very excited.
1: So. No, of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> of course I would have, you know? I um, <laughs> I think no. I'm realizing that, because it's like every, at the end of every episode, um, I say, you know, if you want to be a guest, feel free to email me, you know? Because eventually I would like to be for people to be like, hey, can I come and talk about such and such, you know? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I've learned in the little time that I've been doing this is that sometimes it makes a difference when when you're invited to do something versus feeling like you have to like approach someone, you know? Like when people yeah. are invited to do something, it's like, oh, it, it makes it that much more like, oh, this is something that this person really wants me to be a part of, you know? Um, so I don't I actually don't mind. I'm actually really glad. It's affirming for me as well to be able to reach out and have someone to say, "Oh yeah, I would love to do that." Like, thank you so much for inviting me. Like, that makes me feel good because I didn't think <laughs> I'd be able to get as many guests as I've gotten so far.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think it's a brilliant idea. Like, we're <laughs> highlighting and recognizing the the cool experiences that people our age, especially people of color, have had, and it's very. What sort I'm thinking of? It's very um, it's very inspirational because, like I was saying earlier, it's kind of tough to be a millennial. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything you hear is just doom and gloom, and it's quite nice to hear stories of people who have who have made it, who are still making it. You know, when you get stuck in, like, an educational rut or a career rut or any other kind of rut, hearing other people's experiences is always nice. It opens up other perspectives of, you know, things you haven't ever thought about before. Like, yeah. oh, it's a pretty easy way to get out of this. And that's a really cool thing that he or she did that I could do, too. Yeah. So I think it's a great idea. Um, well, to tell you a little bit about myself, mm-hmm. um, um, I went to Michigan State. Uh, graduated in technically 2015 because I did a fifth year from 2014 to 2015 in Morocco. Mm. Uh, I did a triple major. Would highly not recommend <laughs> to anybody else. Really, no. I, it was like just poorly thought out. You know. So I did James Madison, which was amazing. Yeah. I'm so grateful to all of the professors and the faculty that we have there and the resources they provide to us. Mm-hmm. I started out doing international relations and Arabic. I was always going to double major in that. Even before I got to Michigan State, mm-hmm. I knew that that's what I wanted to do because I had always wanted to, at that time, work for work in government. So I was thinking foreign service or intelligence along those lines. And then I got to Michigan State, and um, comparative cultures and politics started appealing to me very, very much. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well, why not add it on? It was I mean, really only, I think, three extra classes, so quite doable, really. Mm-hmm. But then after I started getting to DC, I realized just, A, how uncomfortable I am with self-promotion, mm-hmm. and B, how pretentious it is to say, mm, yeah, I triple major. So now I just, I excise that bit. <laughs> and I just say, ready interaction relations in Arabic, it keeps for a much simpler yeah. introduction Conversation. (laughs) Uh, But I spent um, a year in Morocco between June 2014 and June 2015. And then I also spent a summer, like two months, I think, or three months in 2013 in Morocco, same city, Mm -hmm. doing this program that unfortunately Michigan State no longer has. It's called the Arabic Flagship Program. Mm -hmm. And it's nationwide. I think about Six universities nationwide maybe participate in it, but it's partially DOD funded. Some other government entities are involved in the funding process. Mm-hmm. And Language flagship exists for a whole ton of critical languages and different universities have um, applied to the language flagship program and gotten funding yeah. to be able to host the language flagship at their school. So Michigan State used to have the Arabic language flagship and I think I was... Um, I might have been the third to last year that we had that grant. Mm -hmm. Um, Through it, they sent me to Meknes, Morocco. Originally, it was supposed to be Alexandria, but they evacuated in 2011. That was terrifying. Oh, yeah, yeah. They evacuated again in 2013, that was even worse, and after that, there was this, it's a government-funded program, there were a lot of concerns for student safety, uh, so since 2013, they have, this particular program hasn't gone back to Egypt. I'm not sure if they will, they've actually, I think they've got a rather good setup going on in Morocco, they've got some excellent teachers, they've really, you know, for for something that all of a sudden had to uproot itself from an established program in Mm -hmm. Egypt, start from scratch in Morocco. I think we've done a really good job of bringing top-notch education and cultural experiences to students in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Wow. So after Morocco, I came straight to DC. Um, When I was abroad, I'm a bit like you. I'm very and. Economic insecurity has always been one of my biggest fears. So Mm -hmm. as soon as I got to Michigan State, I was like, I need a job. What kind of job is it going (laughs) to be? Um, And my fears were even more exacerbated because I was not a U.S. citizen. When I started at Michigan State, I didn't even have my green card yet. Oh, wow. Yeah, we got that um, halfway through my sophomore year. So I was looking at – I was doing this program because I wanted to work in – government and the irony was I didn't know when I would get my green card or citizenship and be able to work in government actually. Yeah. So right off the bat I started looking at programs that would be willing to take people who didn't have US citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where James Madison especially Professor Zeiler, I don't know if you've ever had him. No, but uh, I I know of him. Yeah, he was always oh, around. You could not know who he was. So <laughs> No, he's amazing. Yeah. Dean Garnett, Professor Shapi, they were incredible. And I, I started meeting with them early on and telling them my legal issues and whatnot. And he was the one, Professor Ziller was the one who told me about the Carnegie Junior Fellowship. Mm, yeah. Which is one of the few things that is open to people who don't have um, even a green card, as long as they're, you're able to, to do some sort of like work visa type thing. Um Luckily, we got our green card halfway through sophomore year. That opened up a lot more possibilities. And when I was abroad in Morocco, I remember, you know, five years ago, I had gone to Professor Theater and we talked about me applying for Carnegie. So I thought, okay, why not? It's worth sending out an application. Mm -hmm. Every time he and I had discussed it since then, he's a very realistic guy. So he was like, the only time Michigan State has sent a person to this program was in two forget 2000 or 1999 mm-hmm. uh, so you know in the history of how long this fellowship has been running MSU has been lucky enough to have one junior fellow so the odds are really high each country sorry each um each university in the country has the right to nominate two people um for a host of programs there are about 10 to 12 different programs but you can only nominate two students per university So right then and there, the gaming process starts. You know, the university has to make sure that whoever it's sending is going to be the most qualified Mm -hmm. to go through an internal application round. Um, And I passed that, surprisingly. I was like, I I sent in my application. They were tremendously helpful, Um, Professor Zeller, the Honors College. I think we went through like 30 different application revisions in total. Um, because I'm type A, and that's, a, <laughs> that's what I was... Um, right. Yeah, it, was like, it was just a very wonderful surprise to pass the university round, and then... I mean, even more, just actually being interviewed by Carnegie itself. I fell out of my chair. I was like, what? <laughs> like, all of a sudden, uh, it was February in Morocco, I remember, yeah. and I got a call from my mother that's like, hey, someone from the Carnegie Endowment called our home phone, and I was like, what? She was like, yeah, check your email. I think they're trying to get a hold of you. And sure enough, they <laughs> were like, we want to interview you. I was like, OK. <laughs> that was literally my response. It was yeah. one of severe disbelief and shock. And the interview was, and there's again, I owe MSU so much. I mean, not only James Madison, but also the Arabic faculty, mm-hmm. like Professor Amelia Suleiman, her, her husband, Professor Russell Lucas everybody just gave me all of the help that they had and more and i'm so grateful i don't think i would have been i wouldn't have gotten to dc i think without all of these resources behind me yeah um and then i got the job and i legitimately just like burst out crying (laughs) it was like sometime in mid-march and i was i was sitting in my arabic professor's apartment we were just hanging out practicing egyptian arabic and i was like oh my god there's this email and I was actually really afraid to open it at the beginning I was like no it's like a rejection and I'm just, <laughs> I ended up crying anyway because it wasn't a rejection
1: yeah
0: it, he it was so funny because he couldn't understand for the life of he's like you just got a job why are you crying I was like you don't understand <laughs> it's a really emotional moment right it took so much to get here like oh it, my gosh <laughs> you know like odds I had believed were stacked up against me mm. and and there it was. It was just so unbelievable, really. Mm-hmm. When I came to D.C., that was a very, very long way of saying that's how I got to D.C. <laughs> okay.
1: No, that was great. That was great. And, um, okay, I had so many questions. But um, can you say, like, what the Carnegie Fellowship consists of? Like, what type of work was it that you were doing? Like, is it a fellowship that for study or is that specifically to, like, place you in a certain... Um, field working in D.C.?
0: Yeah, no, great question. It's a research fellowship, so the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace is a major think tank in D.C., and it also has several offices across the globe, like mm-hmm. it's got a people's office, a Beirut office, a China office, and so on. Um, and it also, like I was saying, has a variety of programs that it looks at. Mm-hmm. And I had applied to be part of its Middle East program, um, and so they... They have a collection of scholars and experts who conduct research at the endowment. And the junior fellow program placed you with one or two um, of those experts. And essentially, you were providing research assistance to the areas um, of research that these experts and scholars were focusing on. So in my case, I was paired with... um, I was paired with a Libya researcher, one of the few people who actually still travel to Libya. I mean, you can count them on one hand. Wow. Uh, so he was just absolutely fascinating to work for, and I learned so much from him. And I was paired with another scholar that had just come out of the State Department's policy planning think tank, and he was tasked with getting a new project off the ground. Um, and it was it was uh, supposed to be sort of... Um, Proactive, prescriptive approach to the Arab world post Arab Spring. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the research that people do in DC, unfortunately, I think, tends to be diagnostics. Really easy hindsight's twenty twenty to go back and say X, Y, and Z went wrong five years ago. Um, but there's some there can sometimes be a real lack of what are the solutions? What are the best ways forward, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So to be able to begin my career working on a project like that where the whole onus was prescriptive solutions, forward-thinking analysis, that boosted all of the skills I had accumulated as a researcher even more. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I was at Carnegie, I really, really loved being part of a think tank, but I started to get this feeling that, you know, when you're a think tank, your, your audience, your clients, so to speak, are kind of limited in scope. I mean, you're ultimately trying to affect... Government policy, so that means you're reaching out to Congress, p- other people on Capitol Hill, um, the executive branch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I was there from 2015 to August 2016. Mm-hmm. So it was right when things were starting to get crazy towards the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that. I was working with some brilliant people who's, um, they had so much experience and knowledge and wisdom, Yeah, but they, I don't think we're being given the right kind of reception in these audiences. And I understand because lawmakers and people in government, they have their own agenda, their own constraints that they have to deal with. So they're not able to Fully incorporate the ideas of the expert and the the um, the research community, mm-hmm. but I that chafed at me. Yeah. I really, you know I think when you have so much ex- expertise in front of you and you're not listening to them and you're not following their advice and then you go off and you do something completely hand handed, mm-hmm. it was just very disingenuous to me. So I thought. Maybe the think tank world isn't right for me. I'm not happy with how I see experts being treated. So I wanted to go into the private sector. And risk consulting sounded really fun because it seemed like one of those niche fields where I would still be able to do a lot of IR-related work, but tailor it so that I was able to to advise the business community. Mm -hmm. That's how I wound up at Eurasia Group. Um, which was, it was fascinating work. It's a political versus consulting firm. So what they do is take politics and economics and make sense of it to business community clients. Mm-hmm. So I was a Middle East researcher there also. And one of my main, main tasks was to advise Fortune 500 companies on the various directions that the countries I cover were going to go, whether that's the... Mm-hmm political sphere, the economic sphere, the regulatory sphere, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> My former supervisor was one of the most helpful people ever in, in finding a new job. Both him and um, the two scholars I had worked for at Carnegie were so helpful in setting me up with the right people, giving me contacts, giving me recommendations, and so on. And um, and after being in the private sector and you know, realizing that the private sector also has its own woes... Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like let's go back to the think tank community because the one thing to well I shouldn't say the one thing there's that there are a lot of things amazing about the think tank world but one of the main things that I was attracted by is its work life balance which mm-hmm. is I I mean my private sector experience taught me that that's a little bit harder to come by in the private sector and granted I only have one private sector role to right. speak so too too small sample size to judge <laughs> right. but as- to go back to the think tank sector. And also, when I, when I was in, in um, the risk consulting field, it was fascinating work, but at the same time, since everything is run uh, off of client requests, client contracts are really important, so mm-hmm. they might ask you to do something totally out of your wheelhouse, and you still have to do it. Yeah. So I was writing reports and giving presentations on, on um, data regulation in the UAE. And it hit me once, I was like, no, hang on, I went to college to study Arabic. I mean, I I spent six years of my life studying Arabic, and how much Arabic am I using when I'm trying to find the future of data regulation in the UAE? None. So I wanted to go back into a field that was gonna be a little bit deeper analytically, challenge me to to do some more primary source analysis in Arabic. And so I was ready to go back to the think tank. And that's how I wound up finding my current position, which is with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And I do, Mm. I'm their um, senior research analyst on Gulf affairs. So I cover all of the GCC countries except Oman. Mm. And I'm able to bring with me a lot of the same political economic analysis that I was doing at Eurasia Group, but take it that much deeper. You know, instead of like giving quick predictions to clients. We're able to do a lot of deeper studies, uh, a lot of op-eds highlighting some problematic behavior we see in our Gulf allies. Um, we're able to have access to people within the administration so we can not only hear how they perceive the Gulf, but also advise them on all of these portfolios that we're keeping an eye on. You know, Advise them of where we can pressure our Gulf allies to change problematic behavior but also where do we see our Gulf allies doing really good work that ought to be celebrated and highlighted mm-hmm. and Um uh, so I'm finding this really fun every day can be different it's just so much fun to cover five different countries sometimes it's also really overwhelming because you're like the Gulf right now is changing so much uh, like <laughs> when, we were, when we were younger oh, okay. There was just no impetus for it to change as long as the oil prices were high, but the oil shock of 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. um, so now every single Gulf country is kind of competing with each other in a way to improve their business environments, to attract more foreign capital, et cetera. Et cetera. Every day I feel like there's some new regulatory change, and I'm finding it so much fun to be able to cover the Gulf region during such a dynamic period. Sometimes it can also be frustrating because you're like, oh yeah, Kuwait had a new regulation on labor. Wait, was that the UAE? Didn't Saudi Arabia do something recently too? This country that just allowed full foreign ownership. Was it in these sectors I know, and then you just kind of go in circles yeah there's <laughs> so many developments that it's it can be a little bit hard for me to mm-hmm. go as deeply as I'd like to into each one of the five countries I cover, but I think that's also what makes it the most fun. It always keeps me on my toes yeah you know it's always it's like um there's always something to do, and I really like that i'm never uh, I never get the feeling that I am. Um, settling into a rut in my current role. There's just so many different ways I could take this portfolio. My bosses are incredibly supportive. Mm. They fully welcome any direction that I want to take it to. They're also there if I'm like, is this going to fit within our wheelhouse? They're also there to, to give me guidance on when I need to return to our core objectives, and when I can branch out and do some some research into fields that we normally don't do, so it's a lot of fun. I yeah. really like.
1: It. I'm so glad, Varsa. I'm glad. It sounds like um, based on your past experiences, you're kind of in a in a sweet spot right now where you get to um, work in what you studied for. You get to use your Arabic. You get to do like in depth research, and like your findings are actually like. Um, uh, like respected and put into practice like or actually listened to you know so uh feels sounds like you kind of got like for what it was that you were looking for you kind of got a really good um what's the word like a really good combination of all those things mm-hmm. yeah
0: that's so no. great thank you yeah. thank you it's fun it's really nice and it's you know, it's kind of like what you were saying. I, I ought to have switched roles earlier when I already realized that I was sort of hitting a wall at my previous position. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't know, hindsight's twenty-twenty because right. my current position only opened up around, like, November-ish. Yeah. And you know, to think that I might not be in this company actually makes me feel really sad. Like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> where I'm not at FDD, where things are just so wonderful. Yeah. yeah
1: I'm so glad like it's so uh unfortunately it's it's um not as common as it should be for people to really feel engaged and really feel um passionate about the work that they're doing so I'm really glad that you're in that place now that's that's wonderful yeah so um I want to take it back if I may um to Arabic what was your um, interest in Arabic? I remember you studied French because we were in a couple of French classes together in high school. Yeah, that's (laughs) great. But but then at MSU, um, well, was it before you you got to MSU or was it like like when you started college that you also started studying Arabic?
0: No, it was only in college that I started studying Arabic. My interest in it, it started, I would trace it back to 9-11 actually. Mm. Like when that happened, we were really young. But then that decade just saw this tragic wave of, of terrorism.
1: Yeah.
0: It was 9-11, then there were the London bombings of July 7th. And then worst, like the one that I remember affecting me the most because I was old enough at that time to really process what this all was, was the um, Mumbai bombings of 26-11. When mm. I remember I was on... Um, Actually volunteering at St. Joseph Mercy back then My parents were, you know, Im- immigrant parents They were like, you have one career path And that's going to be medicine <laughs> So I was like, okay, I guess I'll volunteer at a hospital And see how I feel about it right. And I was, I was leaving my shift um, One of the, the men who worked there He was like, oh, you're Indian Did you see what's going on in India? It's burning right now And I was like, mm. Oh, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, there's always some problem or other kind of some offhand comment because I wasn't sure what he meant. Then I came home and I checked the news and I realized like a siege, a full-blown siege had been happening in Mumbai by terrorists and they held the city hostage for three days. Oh my goodness. And I just, I came home and I cried. I was like, I don't understand what fuels this, why they have to perpetrate so much pain and terror against innocent people and... That was sort of what made me realize this is something I'm really interested in, more than interested in. It's something that I would like to fight. Yeah. And Arabic just it was kind of like a um, a natural segue into studying Arabic because everything seemed to be boiling in the Middle East and hotbed for fundamentalism lay in interpretations of Islam and. Mm. The best way all of this seemed to be Arabic. Yeah. So that's how I came to start studying Arabic at MSU. And I really loved it. I think it's a gorgeous language. I love traveling to the Arab world. I loved the year that I spent in Morocco. It's not really that thing that people say where it's like, oh, my God, your you're like life like gains so much perspective when you travel abroad. <laughs> <laughs> that stereotypical bullshit people throw at you about how transformative their studio experience was or whatever. For me, what I loved seeing is how similar we all are at the end of the day. Because I I remember when I was, I was just in Michigan this past weekend, and um, we went on a family holiday. And what did we do on this family holiday? We pulled off the highway when we came to some exit with interesting things like furniture shops or um, a greenhouse nursery that we could buy plants at Mm -hmm. or an area we were driving along the Lake Huron shoreline, so an area that had really pretty views. Mm -hmm. I had an instant flashback to summer 2014. I was driving with my Moroccan host family from our city, McNeese, to Rabat Where they had an apartment And guess what we did We pulled off the highway At a greenhouse So one host of them Could buy some plants mm-hmm. uh, Pulled off the highway When we neared Rabat So we could drive Along the shoreline We pulled off At a couple other stops So that the kids Could go see like An amusement park And I think we pulled off so, at, at some like um, Seafood vendor That was really well known mm-hmm. It's like Doing the same exact thing Right? Yeah so, And it just brought home to me so much more that like we're all so similar at the end of the day mm-hmm. yeah, and that's wonderful for me to continually come back to and realize because the um the older I get, which sounds just so horrifically curmudgeonly <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. The, older, the older I get, I've realized this within the past six months, especially i'm I'm in danger of falling into a rut. Mm-hmm from the routine and forgetting that there's this whole global human existence out there mm-hmm. it's really fun and joyful and peaceful i'm you know i'm really in danger of just letting my constant battle with the DC metro stress me out. I'm in danger of forgetting all of the cool experiences life has to offer when I'm fixated on my 9-to-5 job and when I'm fixated on, okay, it's Friday night, cool, what are my plans going to be for the weekend? And then starting the loop all over again on Monday. So that's why I enjoyed my study abroad experience more than anything because it gave me that depth perception. Yeah. To, I don't know what the right word is, you know? I guess to just climb off of whatever high horse it is we're all on in some way or another and like realizing our existences can actually be pretty myopic in the grand scheme of things. Mm.
1: no it's true though it is it is humbling it is humbling and i um i'm curious though because um you know as you mentioned you um were not born a u.s citizen your family came from india correct Mm -hmm. um i'm wondering if maybe the fact that you already come from somewhere else so it's not like you're someone who like um you had never been anywhere before um, you had already kind of had this experience of migrating from one place to another, having to adapt um is maybe that part also is that also part of the reason why you're not one of those people who's like talking about how transformative studying abroad has been for you or I mean I don't know does that have any role to play
0: in it do you think it's a really good question i think I do think so um I think you have a really good point there you know I understand if you come from I don't know a small town in like somewhere in the great plains and you go abroad for the first time you come back being like whoa I learned so much about life and my world (laughs) transformed now yeah (laughs) it's a pretty good point because I've never considered it that way before Mm. um I never considered it like that because I was eight when I left India so old enough to you know to retain our culture our language Mm etc but not old enough to retain the knowledge of the city that we lived in Um, and the lifestyle that we had, things like that. So I've always sort of heart. I, I've never made that that comparison myself before. Mm. OK. Yeah. I think, no, I was
1: just wondering because it's, um, you know, uh, I, I can understand both perspectives, you know, depending on like what your like, what a person's personal history is. And yeah, um, yeah I think I sometimes I, I'm a little a mixture of both. When I go somewhere, I'm like so grateful to be able to go somewhere that it does feel like a very, uh, like mind-opening experience. But at the same time, I'm I'm not one of those people who's eager to like fall in love with where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like I, I kind of I kind of go like, okay, this is a place like any other place. This is a city like any other city. They're gonna have issues. They're gonna have whatever. Let me not be too quick to just like swoon over it. And just take it in as it is, you know? So I feel like, personally, I'm a mixture of both. But I totally get where you're coming from, where it's just, like, you know... It it probably makes you sound good to talk about, like, what a life-changing experience you've had in such and such a country. Um, And you're just... You, uh, personally, are just not about that. But um, (laughs) I can totally get that, too. Because it's, like, you know... I mean, is that really... If it... I mean, I don't know, if it was really that transformative, do you have to, like, tell everybody about it, you know, as some, exactly. like, high-minded thing that you did, or, you know, or is it is some of it performative, you know, I guess it, it depends I, on the person.
0: No, you hit it on the nail, um, you hit this issue on, on the on the head, like, that's exactly how I feel when people come back, they, they just have this tendency to, like, fetishize and exoticize their study abroad, like, oh my God, it was so interesting (laughs) seeing life through another person's eyes. And it's like, (laughs) study abroad. Oh, I was in Barcelona. Like, okay, give me a break. (laughs) I I find the same thing with volunteerism. People go Mm, abroad, host classes, and come back with basically nothing more than a new Facebook profile picture that shows them being generous and kind and whatnot. Mm. I really, I loved my study abroad. I'm still in touch with my host family, my host mom. Talk on WhatsApp every single day. Like, we talked this morning. Oh, that's so sweet. No, I adore them. And, <laughs> like, we're we're so close. I'm hoping to be able to go back to Morocco sometime later this year, maybe even next year, and to, to visit them. Mm-hmm. I really loved it. It was one of the most relaxed – one of the times I've been the most relaxed. I think because, like I mentioned earlier, it, it got me out of my rut, like this loop that I would have been in otherwise. Yeah. think that's true to any extent right like it could be a study abroad or it could be a mini vacation but I'm the type of I'm a homebody myself Mm, same (laughs) (laughs) So you get this right so whenever I'm home I'm always thinking of like business affairs to put in order chores things to check off on my checklist Uh yeah my study abroad was insanely busy because they had us doing a ton of coursework Um, through our language center they had us doing an internship for like I think eight hours a week or something Mm. and then they also for some of the time had us taking classes at the local university and you know uh, amidst all this you are also trying to not lose your English fluency Um, you're trying to keep up with your family back home and your friends Mm. and you're also trying to um integrate yourself as much as you can into your host country and your family and learn about the culture and the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot. It kept me busy. But I never felt, like, as regimented when I was abroad as I do when I'm here. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, it was, like, it just, like I said earlier, gave me that depth perception I need to really bring me back to, okay, what is life? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah do exactly at the end of the day right
1: for sure for sure now okay just so I'm clear so the the host mom that you keep in touch with um were you staying with her during that summer that first summer you were there or was that for when you went for the entire year it was for the entire year okay all right Mm -hmm. so um Talking about the summer that you well actually no, I have a question before that. So you said the flagship program at MSU, the Arabic flagship program, is not there anymore. Was mm-hmm. it that they ran out of funding or chose not to
0: continue the program? Do you know? Yeah, it's um it's the former. They ran out of funding because you have to like I was saying this is um <coughs> excuse me, um a nationwide program. Mm-hmm. And there are some, there's some centralized funding streams, so you have to give benchmarks that prove you are continuing along the path of developing students' fluency. Yeah. And MSU's Arabic program had fallen by the wayside for several, several years. I
1: know.
0: But then we got an amazing new head of it, Camelia Suleiman. Mm-hmm. She's incredible. And she really did turn the program around, like, When I went to Morocco in 2014, I was one of two Michigan State students, Mm -hmm. and two or three years later, I think a contingent of, like, six or maybe even more Michigan State students went. Wow. She really turned it around, but the problem was that, you know, I think she, when she came in, um, my understanding is that the the nationwide flagship program had already been frustrated with msu's lack of progress and in particular the previous arabic administration from my understanding had really misused or not implemented the funding model correctly because mm. the way this program works is you get x amount of seed money and then every year they give you less and less money because the idea is that you've built some capacity using your seed money so every year you will just need less from the per- from the centralized program to keep your particular flagship continuing. Hmm. And I think you can chalk that out to a load of things. I mean, we all know MSU has more than its fair share of economic mismanagement issues. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We know that <clears throat> Michigan has cut down funding for its well, the government. I mean, the, the federal government has cut down um, funding for its public universities by a lot, and that's yeah. resulted. Michigan and Michigan state suffering equally, so whatever the reason was, Michigan State didn't use that seed money correctly um, and so by the time uh, Professor Suleiman came on, I think it had just it was just too late, like she's oh, tremendous, yeah, she has so much vision. And she's so passionate about helping her students and turning this program around. And one of the things that inspires me the most when we last talked was she expressed her, her desire to apply again in a few years. You know, So she, for her, this isn't like the end of the story. I think she really wants to bring Flagship back, and I admire that so much about her. Yeah, okay. So
1: there's still like an Arabic program at MSU, but not like the Flagship program that you were participating in.
0: Yeah, which okay. really deprives students of it, because the whole model behind the Arabic program is that you spend two years in the classroom mm-hmm. in the U.S., and then your third summer, you go abroad for two months. Then you come back and you spend another year in the classroom, and then you go abroad for a full year. Mm. Yeah. So in that sense, it's like a ready-made program, all you as a student have to do is get the necessary scores in reading, listening, speaking, and writing, so you have to take a big entrance exam, it lasts like three hours or something, mm-hmm. for the speaking, <coughs> listening, and writing sections, and then you also have to have a 30-minute, um, what's called an OPI, with um, with a tester to determine your speaking fluency, and if you get scores high enough, and you, of course, send like a good application package with good references and whatnot, yeah. then you get accepted to the summer program and then you do the same application testing again for the year-long program to get in. So, you know, the the, the nationwide flagship had, I think, also been very, very disappointed with the way MSU had been scoring on those entrance exams. Like, they had students completely fail and not get the minimum fluency necessary to go on the year-long or the summer. But again, this was before... Um Professor Suleiman came on yeah she's really, really turned it around and it's just like a convergence of or a confluence of bad timing that MSU found somebody so capable to take the helm at a time when it seemed like the program had already lost the right. goodwill of its sponsor hmm. so there's still you know you can still learn Arabic at machine State and um, Professor Suleiman is still there but you no longer have that, like, ready-made study abroad. You you now have to research programs on your own. You're going yeah. to
1: funding on your
0: own, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, that's, you know, now that I'm
1: hearing you talk about it, that sounds like, I mean, sure, it's a lot of work, preparing for the exams and stuff, but you don't have to um, keep, you know, searching programs out and, like, you know, applying in all these different ways or trying to, like... Um, figure out when a program or a study abroad experience is going to fit within your um, schedule in terms of when you're trying to graduate and all that stuff. <laughs> like, it's kind of already set so long as you do whatever the work is that's required. Um, yeah, that's, that's a shame. I mean, I do hope, since the Professor Suleiman seems so um, dedicated, if she is able to apply again and get it going again, I feel like that would be a great resource for, you know, students like you who are interested in, you know... Learning Arabic and also uh, engaging more with you know the Middle East. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. I think she's an incredible person, and if there's anyone who could bring this back, I think it's her. Yeah. And honestly, I would not, I would not have the career path that I have now if it weren't for my Arabic language skills.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And so, okay, so the summer part was that just for like language study, or what? What did the summer um, portion consist of? it was the same thing yeah it's
0: they're both language study okay the difference being like the full year abroad is what they call your capstone year and it's really meant to be an immersive experience so that's Mm -hmm. why you take university level courses as well as do a local internship of sorts yeah is is, you know just kind of your typical summer study abroad but a lot more intensive on the language side so you're in class like I think six hours a day, maybe eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a ton of homework. <laughs> they still have a cultural component that so they were able, you know, you're able to travel on your own within Morocco to an extent given that you still have a five-day school week and all that. Yeah. Uh, and then they also organized a trip into the Sahara for us and some cultural activities for us. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> okay, wow. So, um... Wow. so were you I remember you said that they originally were supposed to go to Alexandria and then because of like things that were going on especially in 2011 it shifted to Morocco were Mm -hmm. you disappointed by that in any way like had you had your heart set on going to Egypt or was it were you open to any um, country and any like Arab speaking country
0: or Arabic I'm sorry speaking country so the truth is I didn't even think I was going to make, I didn't even think I was going to get into the program. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I didn't care where it took me. I was like, I don't, I'm not going to pass that That entrance exam is really key to going. Um, you know, you have to get the minimum scores needed on those four skills or they just won't take you. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not even going to pass these exams. I'm just going to fail out. I'll <laughs> never make it to this program. <laughs> I did, and it turned out to have, like, I I was, me and this other um, person on it had the highest speaking scores on this, um, on the program before it started. And when I found that out, I was like, okay, I don't care, just send me wherever, I got it. (laughs) And, you know, I will say some people did throw a fuss. Um, There was a big contingent in my year that acted as if they were too good for Morocco. Mm -hmm. um, It didn't There that What's wrong to, with Morocco, though? What's wrong with Morocco? They wanted to be. I mean, so they when it comes to the Arab world, like North Africa has always been a little bit sort of the periphery. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to be in the Levant, or they wanted to be near the Levant. So Egypt was going to be a really great launching pad for that. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people grumbling about, you know, how ugly Morocco's um, version of dialectical Arabic is and whatnot. And I was like, what are you all complaining about? Because the truth is, you get to add another dialect right. to your kit for free, and more is always better when it comes to Arabic because every country has its own dialect. Mm. You are learning one of the most difficult ones. Like Moroccan, Algerian, and Tunisian are considered <laughs> some of the hardest dialects to learn. Wow. Really? You add one of those to your belt. And also, I was like, What are you complaining about? Because our funders really wanted us to be able to get the experience we would have had in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. Egyptian Arabic and Lebanese Arabic are among the most understood dialects. Um, And, you know, when, when the program was first advertised, it was promised... We would all be learning Egyptian Arabic and whatnot. So our funder actually paid for the teachers we would have had in Egypt to come to Morocco and live for a semester uh, longer so they could teach us Egyptian Arabic. So I was like, what are you complaining about? You're getting all these additional skills. Right. Yeah, that's weird. I don't understand
1: that either. (laughs) That sounds like a really great setup, you know?
0: I loved it for that reason. I mean, like Morocco to say when you tell people you're like, Moroccan Arabic, they're like, what? How did you learn that? I think that's such a cool, unique
1: thing to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And how, um, had you been to the Middle East before you um, went to Morocco as part
0: of the flagship program? No, never. So, I mean, until this year, I had an Indian passport. I became mm-hmm. a U.S. citizen in May of this year. Um, so, traveling on an Indian passport is it's a, it's a pain in the butt. I mean, you have to get visas for nearly every country. Um, visa fees can be expensive. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you'd have to travel to consulates in Chicago uh, to get the visas. So I had just never gone anywhere because okay. the cost and the logistics needed were kind of prohibitive. Right, right, for sure.
1: Totally understandable. Um I'm sorry, I didn't – I kind of – you, like, faded out a little bit. When did you say you gained citizenship, American citizenship? May 2018. Oh, so this year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, belated <laughs> congratulations to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm not yeah, – it's, it's relief. Yeah, I'm sure it was a really long road. I mean, I don't know anything um, – well, I know next to nothing about the whole immigration process, but from, I think, things that you've told me and just things that I've read – in the past it it seems like a really long hard difficult process um so i'm glad that you were able to to make it um <laughs> <laughs> oh wow okay um all right so then were you were you nervous then i mean i don't know if you were able because you said you didn't really go anywhere um while you still had like your indian passport um, I don't know if you were in the habit of traveling back to India or, or what other international travel you had been doing. I mean, were you nervous going to Morocco since you hadn't been really going to any other places?
0: Not because I didn't have travel experience. Mm-hmm. I was nervous because the first time I went to Morocco, the second time I went, I wasn't nervous from like a cultural perspective. I was just nervous of like, How am I going to handle a year away from home, basically? Yeah. The first time I went, my biggest fear was since I look Indian, I'm not white, Mm -hmm. I have a dark skin tone, you know, I I could, like, I wonder when people see me, will they look at me and think, oh, she must be Arab? Mm. And that, will they hold me to a different set of behavioral and cultural standards? Yeah. So my biggest fear, and then the inverse of that also applied, which was, do you know that I am not white? Mm-hmm. They can also look at me and say I am not Arab. So, are they going to hold me to a different social standard? Uh, in the sense that, like, you've probably seen news reports of how Indians are treated in the Gulf. Indians. Yeah. Bangladeshis, I mean, for them, South Asians are just viewed kind of as cheap labor, and it's terrifying and heart-wrenching the way these laborers are treated. And so I was like, will there be an element of that when I go to Morocco? Like, will some people look at me and say, oh, she's not white? Okay, well, lower social status. Like, let's put her down on the pecking order or whatever. They both turned out to be totally misplaced fears, which I was very happy to realize. good. good. Uh, The people that did, like, place me as Indian right away were really happy to have an Indian come visit Mm -hmm. because I hadn't recognized until I had gone to the Arab world. Indian soft power actually means a lot there in the sense that everybody loves Bollywood. (laughs) oh, my gosh, I forgot all about Bollywood. (laughs) I did, too, because, I I mean, it's not like... I'm from southern India, so I don't speak Hindi. I don't watch Bollywood movies Mm -hmm. much as a result. And, you know, it's not really like I was that tied to watching them after I moved to the States anyways. Yeah. Um, So here I was, you know, worrying people would be racist towards me because I'm Indian, and it's the opposite. They loved me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) they loved the fact that I was Indian. I would go to the souks to shop, and they'd be like, you're Indian? Okay, here, I'm giving this as a discount. We love Indian people. We love, like, (laughs) Taxi drivers would be like you're Indian, and be like, yeah, and then they would start speaking in Hindi to me, and I was like, how do you learn this? And they're like, oh, Bollywood movies. <laughs> I myself Hindi while watching Bollywood, and they would speak Hindi with no trace of an accent, and he- and then I would have to embarrassingly tell them, so I don't actually speak <laughs> Hindi. You, know, you could just see their faces fall because they were like, damn, I thought like you're finally an Indian, I could speak my Hindi. Oh, <laughs> but, no, that was actually one of the coolest. That <laughs> was one of the coolest things I walked away from. That's so nothing In soft power counts for something in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, like, it's a little bit embarrassing to admit, right? I'm 26 and and I'm s- still, like, not over how how um, intensely I rebelled when I was younger to escape mm. Indian And Indian heritage I mean I just really wanted to fit in at school I wanted to be like the white kids I didn't want to be excluded from things I didn't want them to look at me And think that I was weird or strange Or whatever And so the easiest way to do that Is to completely cut ties to India Oh man That's a strategy that Doesn't really bring much pleasure But I'm sure I'm not the only teenager Who thought that that was the best way to go Oh no most definitely not Most definitely not (laughs) For people of color, for me, as an Indian woman of color, to go to the Middle East and realize my country is accepted, celebrated, loved, viewed fondly—that just did so much to make me happy mm. in a way, like to, to to boost my ego. You know, like I feel like even sometimes when I go back to Michigan, like especially when I would go to Northern Michigan where there are fewer Indians, I feel yeah. as if. Trying so hard to bury my Indianness and to prove people look like I'm American. I might come from India, but ignore that I'm totally American. I'm like one of you guys, and it sort of does feel like I'm in a uh, I'm in between a rock and a hard place yeah. as regards identity. But to be in the Middle East was just so freaking. I wouldn't even tell people. <clears throat> to be in Morocco, rather, was so freeing in that regard. Because I, w- I would just tell people that I'm Indian. I wouldn't even tell them, oh, I'm American. I was born in India, but I grew up in America. I mean, that that just took a lot of words in the beginning when I was still tripping over my Moroccan Arabic. But even towards the end when I got better, I was like, mm-hmm. let's not let's not get into the complicated aspect of it. Like, let's tell them I'm Indian. They clearly appreciate where I come from. Yeah, for sure. See that I clearly appreciate their country. And we'll have a positive exchange. Yeah. You know what, Varsha,
1: that is so beautiful. Like, I I can't really... um, Obviously, I don't share the same uh, perspective um, with you uh, being, you know, an immigrant but also South Asian, um, trying to just fit in here. But, you know, growing up as a person of color, I totally understand feeling that pressure to just, like, be like your classmates and... Mm -hmm and not stand out too much and like you know you want to be proud of who you are and where you come from but then you also just also don't want to stand out too much cuz when you stand out too much that's when you know um you know you put yourself at risk unfortunately you know so yeah. i totally get where you're coming from and i'm sorry that you felt like you had to try so hard to to hide your indianness but at the same time i think that's so beautiful that you were able to have this experience where it's like you know like where I come from like a piece of me is really valued yeah. in this place like I might not have known that before or been in a situation like that but having that experience like you said must have just felt so good to be like no where I come from this part of me that I've struggled with is actually really valuable and it means something that's that is so beautiful and I'm so glad you were able to, to have that moment that's, thank you Yeah, that's wonderful um yeah I know it can be really hard and I don't like I said I can't really I don't know like your experience I haven't lived it the way you have but uh I'm really glad that you're like coming to terms and and you're able to be more proud than you were you know when you were younger
0: yeah yeah for sure it was nice to be able to reclaim my identity in a positive way yeah
1: definitely definitely and I was wondering, because I know you said you were uh, curious about, like, what kind of social or cultural standards you <clears throat> were held to. I don't really know much about Morocco. Um, like, were there certain, like, standards or cultural or, or social standards that you felt were, like, um, maybe really stringent or surprisingly surprisingly more lax than you had expected?
0: Not in that way, no. What I What I meant to say by that statement was, like, I wondered whether there were things that my white American classmates could do and get away with that I would not be able to ah, do. Ah, okay. right. you know, like They could probably wear <clears throat> something sleeveless or something short and people will be like, ah, white tourists, whatever.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But if I were to wear the same thing, and this is 2013, before I had gone to Morocco, before I realized – everything I had just told you that you know there actually was no difficulty there was no issue at all yeah. but that was my fear is like when they see me will they think that I'm Arab and wearing stuff like this which that which then just opens me up to to all these risks um you know both like reputational and possibly even physical when mm-hmm. they're like oh, here's some you know here's somebody who is flouting the rules of our customs and our, our, our culture and whatnot yeah okay that makes
1: sense yeah it's um I yeah I see because if, if you're a certain type of foreigner, certain things can be written off. Like, oh, they just don't know better. Or, oh, they're only here for a short time, so it doesn't matter. Whereas, exactly. you know, if you're not in that group, then it's kind of like, you know, you have more higher expectations. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I totally get that. Yeah. Um. Wow. And then also, I'm just curious, as someone who's, like, studied French for a long time, um, like, is... Was Morocco a former colony? I should know this. Oh, my goodness. I feel so bad that I'm not remembering because I know I study this history. But, like, is French still, like, around, like, on signs and stuff? Like, do people even speak French in Morocco anymore?
0: Yeah, it's it's around, very much so. Okay. Uh, uh Yeah, their official, I think their second official language is French. Okay behind arabic okay. and it um it was actually a nice little cheat in my early days like i remember going to the phone store cuz they needed a phone and i had you know i had none of the vocab needed to be like yeah i need i'd like to get basically a burner phone um with a moroccan sim card and i'd like it to have x amount of prepaid minutes mm-hmm. x amount of prepaid text so i just resorted to my french it was like <laughs> It was a nice little crutch to lean on in those early days, but it turned out to be helpful as the program progressed, because Moroccan Arabic just has a lot of French words thrown in. Mm. Uh, it's kind of similar, actually, to the way that Tamilians speak, because we ha- we just have a lot of English words thrown in. I mean, there are Tamil words for things like um, chair, cup, etc., etc., cetera. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, most Tamilians will just use the English words for that. Mm, okay. Uh, and so Moroccan Arabic was quite similar in that regard. Is all of a sudden, you know, people are saying something to you in Arabic, and then they'll have like a daco thrown in. <laughs> Like you know, actually, a lot of words in Moroccan Arabic come from French. Um, like the word for present, they don't use the the formal Arabic word for it; they use cadeau. Really? Yeah, wow, that's interesting. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! Okay, yeah, because I had learned like how, like, um, like the whole northern African, northern Africa area. Um, I think is it Maghreb is what they call mm-hmm. it, um, you know, was under like heavy French influence, if not like direct colonization and other forms of, you know, like control and coercion and all that stuff. Um, so I know like Morocco has that legacy, but I don't since I haven't been there and I haven't um, studied, you know, uh, the Middle East, Northern Africa, I don't know like to what extent French still affects, you know, yeah. the way people talk and, and live there. So that's I really mean, interesting.
0: The street signs there were a lot of them in French. you'd see a lot of like arreter. and then the you know the signs for municipal buildings were in French mm-hmm. um, storefront like just plain old shops might have um French names, so yeah, rather interesting, yeah, okay, well, thank you I learned well, I learned a ton
1: of new things already listening <laughs> to you today, but as a French learner, it's like oh okay i didn't I never would have considered like French words in. Like, thrown into Moroccan Arabic. Like, (laughs) it
0: never crossed my mind. (laughs) I feel like me not, like, looking white came to help me in this regard because the thing is, like, a lot of the, the shopkeepers, the taxi drivers that people in my program interacted with were like, oh... Foreigner, I am going to practice my French with them. <laughs> Here we are, you know, being being put on this program so we can practice our Arabic. So some of my friends did have a difficult time convincing some Moroccans they were interacting with to speak to them in Arabic and oh, the Moroccan wow sometimes the Moroccans even express genuine surprise they're like you want to talk to me in that issue? you don't want to like Moroccan Arabic you don't want to talk to me in French for me that was actually never an issue <laughs> <laughs> look at me and immediately think, gosh the tourist from Europe <laughs> which was really nice um, it definitely helped in pushing me to use my Arabic all the time mm-hmm.
1: okay that's cool you you kind of got to obviously you were there mostly for Arabic but you got to
0: use a little French too so that's yeah. came in handy. <laughs> I haven't, you know, kept up with my French. I, um, I don't really like Michigan State's French program because I, I mean, I didn't stay long enough to experience more of it, but mm-hmm. what happened was I took some, I took some tests, like placement test, and this was known to be a horribly flawed test. Mm-hmm. Since I, since then, I think they've changed it to make it a lot more reflective of people's abilities but it put me in the equivalent of French 202 oh. um, after taking French for six years you yeah. know with my mom in in high school and then a couple of years before that in middle school so it was just a waste of a class and after that I was like my French teacher recognized that he was a TA and he mm-hmm. was like French is obviously too good for this class so <clears throat> he gave me a waiver to get into like I think he let me basically skip a year of French, and he wanted me to start taking their lit courses directly, Mm. and I was about to take it to the admin building and do some, do whatever it was needed, but then, you know, just the idea of, like, running into a paperwork trail and Mm. the French department having to prove, like, I'm better than the class you've put me in, and this was also my, I think it was starting to be my sophomore year by the time, like, I'd gotten this waiver, and that's I, did. I was going to add CCP as my third Oh, yes. You were already like,
1: doing too much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do wish I kept up more with it. I can still, I can read and understand it. I can hear people and understand it. But I cannot, I'm not even kidding, I cannot get out more than like two to three words in French before my brain just automatically switches to Arabic.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, to Arabic. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, I mean, that makes sense since you've been, like, so concentrated on Arabic for so long. I, You know, I can't blame you for that. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, everybody... Even when you, like, set out to learn a language, you might set out to, like, learn as much as you can and become fluent. But then as time goes on, and depending on what you're using the language for, you know, people's priorities shift. So, you know, if if French is not... If it had ceased to be, like, that big of a priority it makes sense that it kind of takes the back seat and so it's not as strong as it used to be, you know. But um I mean, I don't know. I don't I wouldn't blame you for that. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, and you can always if for some reason you're inspired to learn more, or be able to speak more, you can always do that, you know. So Yeah. Um,
0: Think about it, there's the uh, like, the Alliance here mm-hmm. in mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um some friends of mine have taken French courses through them and found it just really fun. Yeah, there's always an option. Yeah,
1: for sure. So no worries there. Um, wow. I just, <laughs> I've just enjoyed so much of our conversation because I, I knew you were doing all this stuff, but I didn't like know the details or ask you about it. So listening to you talk about it, it's just been so, so great. And um, you mentioned your host mom. So, uh, did you also have a host family when you went for the summer program? I
0: did, yeah, um, I had a different host family wasn't the same one. I'd actually requested that same host family for the summer program, but I think they elected not to do the host exchange anymore mm.
1: um,
0: she was lovely, a lovely woman. It's just she and I didn't click as well as my- my most recent host mom and I did, and mm-hmm. I mean we would my most recent host mom and I had just amazing chats, like I adore <laughs> that woman, oh my gosh. And so my, my fiance and I um, met on this program. Oh really? hmm Oh wow, yeah.
1: okay. So yeah. he speaks
0: Arabic too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. He's, he's sort of, he's very rusty now because he's in law school, he kind of went away from the national security track and isn't gonna be using Arabic that much in his, his field of law. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but so we met in Morocco, and we tried to date there. And I, you know, I told her her name's Bushra. And I was like, Bushra, I met this guy. He's really cute. You know, he's from the same state as me. So if we, if something did happen, it would be so great because mm-hmm. home is the same place for us. Yeah. Um, it crashed and burned in Morocco. <laughs> <laughs> Very immature people, and the back then, and the dynamic of being abroad and trying to have a relationship amidst all these other pressures was not working out. And, you know, she's just so amazing. Like, she and I had so many late-night conversations and so many, like, over-the-breakfast-table over, over the breakfast table chats where she consoled me through my breakup. But she's... Oh. That's, that's what I mean when I say I had depth perception nice. when I got depth perception, because I was living life in another language and, like, just learning so much about humanity, because here he she was, you know, reaching across cultures to, she'd never dated when she was younger, reaching out across cultures to console me, <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> was dating this guy, so it's, it was just all sorts of wonderful, mm-hmm. really, yeah, she's an amazing woman.
1: That's great, and was it just her, like, did, were you living with her family, or was it just you and her
0: in, in the no, house? Her- family so I was living it was her her husband and her two children okay and they had this beautiful house they had two cats and it was just a really fun neighborhood I made friends with all of the neighborhood watchmen mm. yeah it was a really nice place to be <laughs> that's so
1: good and I'm so glad you're still in touch with her I think that's wonderful yeah um, I'm really the
0: lucky ones there were some hor- there were some true horror stories in this program because people think like oh, I get paid money to host American students thinking they can just pocket the money. But that money is actually so you can, you can feed us, um, house us, you know, for the water and the, the electricity that we're using and whatnot. So there were some families that would actually not feed their host kids. (gasps) And yeah, isn't that like just horrific? Oh my goodness. And then there was my host family, which like they went above and beyond and gave me like extra meals. Um, she would bake me pastries. I mean, she's just so sweet. Like I, um, the day before I left for the winter break to to leave, because um, I, I I was going to spend a month in Michigan and then come back to Morocco. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew I really really liked this one couscous dish. It's done with caramelized onions and golden raisins, cashews. So good, incredible. Um So she, and every Friday is couscous day in Morocco. Mm-hmm. So. For lunch is a big meal of couscous. And I just walked down to lunch that day. I was going to have a flight the next morning back to Michigan. And there's a whole huge vat of this couscous with onions and raisins in it. She was, like, she was like, it's a good thing you like to sleep in late. I was really afraid you would wake up and come down here and see that I was making this to surprise you. Oh. So sweet. You are just the Best. Oh, my gosh. She really was like your mom. She you was. <laughs> she, 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 my, I call her mom. I call her my, my Moroccan mother. <laughs> I'm on the phone with her. She's just so sweet. I adore her. And her children were so precious. I mean, they were like, when I was there, they were six and eight, and the, the eight-year-old boy just wanted to play all the time and then the six-year-old girl would be like will you do my nails (laughs) (laughs) you I love that family so much
1: oh my goodness that's so that's so good um yeah from what I've heard for in terms of like host families it can it can be wonderful and and sometimes not so wonderful so (laughs) it's really good you had the the fortune to be with the family you were with. And for so long, you were there for yeah. a year
0: this time and not just a summer. Yeah, I was so lucky. I mean, the, the plan was like, I knew I was going to be there for a year. So actually, I when I first went, I didn't want to stay with the host family the whole year. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, okay, I'll spend the summer with them and then I'll move out and get my own place. And, I, and the idea was I would like live with some of my program friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of us loved our host family so much that we didn't want to move out come summer so I was like, okay, let's just stay till December. And then by December, I was like, no, I absolutely love these people. <laughs> I'm not leaving. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. That is so good. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so it seems like you've had, uh, you know, ups and downs aside, a pretty positive experience as far as, like, study abroad goes. Um, and you've already said a lot of really really insightful things. Um, I'm just wondering if for anyone who's thinking about uh, studying abroad or just like traveling internationally more, do you have any advice, like anything that became, um, you know, pertinent to you
0: that you would like to share? Um, I would say don't go in with preconceived notions because one of the things that I found the most disappointing was, as I was telling you earlier, there was a know a a group within my my program that that um thumbed their noses at morocco and didn't think morocco was good enough for them and whatnot Mm -hmm. and i think as a result i mean they were they were really negative for most of the program and here i was having fun i you know going to the beach with my host family like taking the midnight train down to morocco's southern atlantic coast just for like a fun weekend Mm -hmm. and going to Fez by myself for a music festival and all this stuff. It was. I would say don't go in with preconceived notions because you can do as much research as you possibly want to, but you cannot understand the context of where you're going until you're already there. Right, right. And it might be difficult, especially when you've set yourself certain expectations. Uh, you know, we were all given the expectation of we will go to Egypt and then... Mm-hmm. Summer 2013 happened, and everybody was told, no, no more Egypt. You're going to go to Morocco. And I imagine that might have been a bitter pill for many people to swallow. Some people maybe had already staked like their professional lives, maybe, on everything they were going to do in Egypt and all this great experience that they were going to have. Mm-hmm. But when one door closes, another opens. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> what I've always thought of it. So yeah, the Egyptian door may have closed, but... I'm not regretting it. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I, I was able to make the most of Morocco. And for any future travels, I'm, like, I'm like very much the same way of don't go in with preconceived notions. Mm. I actually broke that vow earlier this year, and I learned my lesson. Mm. Um, so work took me to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Mm, okay. And <clears throat> when I went, I was, like, I am going to love the UAE. I'm going to hate Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And I based this on what I told you earlier about how um, South Asians are treated across the Gulf countries. Yeah. But I was also like, oh, I'm just going to really dislike my experience in Saudi Arabia because it'll be repressive. I'll have to wear my abeya, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I was so wrong. I love Saudi Arabia. And I mm-hmm. cannot wait to go back. It was, it was <laughs> so incredible. Like, Yes, you might have to wear an abaya, mm-hmm. but the restrictions on public dress are way, way, way looser now than they were even just a couple of years ago. Wow. Everybody, is, um, everybody that we met, and I even took Ubers around Riyadh by myself just just to like, see more of the city. Mm-hmm. Everybody we met was so warm and open and inviting, and they were so happy that Saudi Arabia's was opening up and more western visitors are lining up to come in. They wanted to share their best self and their country's best self with you. And in contrast, it wasn't like the UAE trip was bad. The UAE was also just as fun, mm-hmm. but I didn't get the same personal tactility in the UAE. You know, it seemed to me like the U- the UAE is a country where They've been very open for a very long time, there are expats and there are actual Emiratis, so they were very kind and unfailingly polite and pleasant, but there wasn't that whole sense of, like, we're so happy you're here that we come from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So I broke my own vow. I went in being like, oh, I'm going to feel really chafed by Saudi. And it was the total opposite. I cannot wait to go back. Like, I'm eagerly anticipating <laughs> when they launch tourist visas. And I hope to be one of the, the people getting them as soon as they go live. Yeah. See, isn't that so funny how
1: things can work out the opposite of when you how you think it's going to go? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And And like you said, you learned your lesson, you know, not to have uh, preconceived notions beforehand. Um, So I'm glad that you were proved wrong, but for the better, you know, in a really good way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very true. I don't regret being taught my lesson. I needed it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: That's great. And do you have any um, travel plans coming up, either domestic or internationally? Would you want to go to
0: Morocco again at some point? I'm really hoping maybe for Christmas this year I might just, I might go. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, I've just got the American passport, so the entire world is open. <laughs> so yeah. like, yeah, so why do I need to go home? I go home all the time. Let's go elsewhere. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, Marsha? And <laughs> um, for Thanksgiving, my fiance and I are going to go to London, which I'm super stoked about. I've never really? been. Yeah, he's never been either. It's it's a quick trip, only four days. Okay, uh, but it'll be. We're going to try to pack in as much as we can, and I'm so excited to see the UK because I've I've seen so many British TV shows at this point that everything on Netflix is just like British crime dramas in my <laughs> my suggested for you feed. So, I'm going <laughs> to actually go to England and instead of see it through a TV screen, <laughs> right yeah
1: I'm sure that'll be so great, like you know it's it's um outside of like your your hobbies or the shows you like to watch, you're actually in yeah you know, this place that you've been watching and learning about for so long, and you know um yeah, I'm sure that'll be different, but also exhilarating to finally be there, you know, yeah, that's awesome and uh, that's in th- that's in November you said for thanksgiving mhm okay, exciting.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm <laughs> well, I hope you enjoy that and um belated wait, so you got your citizenship this year and you got engaged this year? Yeah, I know it's been kind of a whirlwind. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. so much. So many changes, but good changes, you know? Good changes. <laughs> my gosh, 2019 is a lot to live up to. Right. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, congratulations again on getting engaged and and getting your citizenship and all the other awesome stuff that's going on in your life right now. Um, Last but not least, I wanted to ask, um, where can people find you or connect with you online if you would like them to do that?
0: No, totally. Um, I have a Twitter. It's just, it's at Varsha Cotavire, so my first and last name. All lowercase. Yeah. And that's the best way to connect with me. I have a Facebook, but really I don't use it at all, except to, like, message friends and <laughs> watch cat videos. But my cat has an Instagram. I highly recommend everyone to follow it. Oh, really? What's What's the handle? It is um, – let me pull it up for you. This is how good I am with technology. I don't even remember my cat's own Instagram. Anymore. Okay, it is – Nigel Farage, (laughs) M-C-P. Farage, F-U-R-R-A-G-E. And if you look at his picture, you'll know why, because he's a ginger cat, and (laughs) Nigel, you know, the actual Nigel Farage has a very ruddy complexion, so Mm -hmm. we were like, this is too good to to miss the opportunity. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That is adorable. That really is. (laughs)
1: Okay, so people, so either uh, people can either hit you up on Twitter or uh, follow your cat on Instagram. Exactly. Nigel okay. is very
0: responsive. <laughs> he takes his duties seriously. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Well, um, thank you so much for spending
1: so much time talking to me. Um, you know, I know... Uh, like people won't hear it but you know we spent a long time just like chatting and mostly me airing out my grievances before we actually started the interview i appreciate you just like listening to me ramble and even more than that i appreciate you talking about you know your experience with arabic and and um you know uh trying to find your place in terms of working um in government and all the different people and and um you know, resources that were able to, that you had to help you along the way. Um, I appreciate you for being so open and just you know wonderful to talk to. You. I I really do appreciate it.
0: No, not at all. Thank you so much for asking me to be featured on this. Like I said, I think it's a brilliant idea. And please don't apologize for our catch up before we started recording because it's like it's like. Three to four years overdue, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> it's like you can have a longer catch-up session. That's all. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad this was this was good on your end. It was definitely a real pleasure, a real treat to to be on here on my end. So
1: thank you. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you, and you are are welcome. Like I just I'm 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 grateful to you, and I'm also glad that you know this was uh, enjoyable for you as well. So, um, thank you. yeah good all around so um thank you and i hope you have a wonderful saturday wonderful weekend um i don't know if you're still on vacation
0: or not um oh, back i got back earlier this week oh, okay. but brother's visiting tomorrow and it's his first time in dc so this should fun. yeah yeah you get to show him around and all that i'm excited i'm gonna make him ride the metro so he hates it as much as i do <laughs> <laughs> Every, my, whenever my parents visit, I purposefully make us take the metro places because at first they didn't understand why I wanted to wrap up life in D.C. within a couple of years and move back to Michigan. Mm-hmm. And this time, when they, when they came most recently, last year, we hadn't even gone two full stops before my mother turned over and she was like, I think you should come back to Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, success. My strategy worked. <laughs> <laughs> wow so your brother will have a real like
1: dc initiation through the metro <laughs> <laughs> oh well, i hope you have tons of fun i hope you are, uh have a great rest of your summer and um yeah just i hope for nothing but good things for you and your fiance that's cool too you're getting married. so excited yeah you okay well then i'll i'll let you go okay rysha take care have a good one all right you too bye, bye. all right y'all there it is thanks to varsha for being such a wonderful guest and i hope you like how this all turned out for the rest of you listening don't forget to follow this podcast at young gifted and abroad on instagram and facebook and don't forget to check out guest profiles, and resource lists on younggiftedandabroad.com. And And if you like what you've been hearing so far, please continue listening to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast, or Stitcher. And last but not least, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on this podcast, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. So for next week I have a guest who is very special to me, I like to call her my neighbor mom. Um, <laughs> I went to school with her daughter uh, from elementary to high school, she has been my neighbor and also um, is also an educator, has been an educator for 20 something years. And um, I actually didn't get um, all that close to her until uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, When she invited me to assist her and a group of other educators in preparing a group of middle schoolers to go on an exchange trip to Japan um, a year ago, actually, in the fall of last year. And so um, she spent some time talking to me about uh, what that was like, uh, what facilitating that program was like. And then also the impetus for her wanting her students to go to Japan was her own um, experience being able to go to Japan um she was invited to participate in educational tour to japan and that just made her want to keep going and travel more and spread the opportunity around so you get to hear all about that next week but until then thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time